Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name's Rosie Alsop. I'm Communications Director at We Are Guernsey, the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Randeep Somel, who's Portfolio Manager at M&G Investments and Manager of the M&G Climate Solutions Fund. Welcome, Randeep. Hello, Rosie. So firstly, to introduce you to our listeners, Wendy, can you tell me how you ended up working in this green uh, area of green finance and tell us a bit about your personal backstory? Sure. Well, a warm hello to everybody and pleasure to be here with you all. Um, I st- I've been at MNG my whole career, so I'm into my 17th year working in finance, looking at equities and the whole time at MNG Investments in London. Over that period of time, I've had the opportunity to look at lots of different sectors in all different countries, very much global in nature, how I look at investments and had the opportunity to learn some, some of the finest minds in equity investing. Now, throughout my career, I focused on two areas, thematic investing, i.e. looking at areas where we think there's going to be a lot of growth going forward and concentrating on those. And second of all, engagement, working in areas such as basic industries, where you are required to get involved and be very active in the companies that you invest in. Now, if you put these two areas together today, thematic investing and engagement, it pretty much brings you to where we are today, which is climate. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you look at the amount of capital that needs to be invested going forward from here in order to reach net zero, and the Bloomberg New Energy Foundation survey has put it at anywhere between 92 trillion and 173 trillion from now until 2050, we have a huge opportunity towards a thematic investing area. And second of all, engagement, investing in companies across sectors, across countries that are looking to provide the solutions to the challenges that we see today in climate requires working with those companies, requires the engagement, whether it be their business operations, whether it be their boards, whether it be their social policy, whether it be their own climate target, or establishing what the net impact is of that business is a lot of engagement with businesses, not just myself, but the team that we have around us. So that is where I find myself today, managing the MNG Climate Solutions Fund. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And yet when you spell out the amount of of money, that is a truly eye-watering sum. Now, your role is portfolio manager at M&G Investments, managing the Climate Solutions Fund. Can you outline uh, what this looks like in practice and perhaps tell our listeners about your investment philosophies at M&G and what you're working on? Sure. So if we just take one step back, I'm a part of our sustainability and impact investing equity team at M&G. So we launched the Positive Impact Fund just over three years ago now. 
And that looks to invest in all areas that provide a positive impact, not just on the climate side, but whether it comes to financing, healthcare, education, i.e. any area hitting one of the United Nations 17 sustainable development goals. So that's quite a wider remit for that portfolio. And I've, as a team, we've worked on that um, over the last three years, but it's becoming pretty evident now that we can carve out separate areas within that wider UN 17 SDG framework. So I specifically look at the six UN Sustainable Development Goals that specify a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions um, in order to reduce the level of warming um, of our planet. So that's how the framework of the fund is effectively set up. Now, we can invest anywhere in the world, i.e. any country. We can invest across any sector, and we have our own proprietary investment process. We call it the I framework. And what do, the, what do those I stand for? Investment, intention, and impact. So... Again, back to climate, we look for companies that are good investments. Our average holding period is in excess of six years across the team. So it shows that we find very good companies and we back them. But we look for companies that are going to make a strong, have strong revenue growth, have a strong margin, have some form of asset or IP that protects that margin, and companies that we believe can make good returns over what is a long period, um, over what is a long investment horizon. The second is intentionality. We don't want to invest in companies that have accidentally come across climate. We're investing in companies that today set out that their aim is to help the world in terms of reducing greenhouse gases and global warming, to make sure that our investment intentions are aligned with theirs. And how do we satisfy this? We look at investment aims of businesses, i.e. their mission statements. We look how management are remunerated and we look at how good they are at implementing their, their set out aims. The third part of that is impact. Now, this is the quantitative part of it. Exactly how good is a company's impact, especially in the area of climate? Now, there are a lot of concerns around greenwashing. So we want to make sure that we don't put in companies that are just anecdotally um, talking a good game. But when you actually look at the numbers, can't deliver. So we have a policy where we look at a company's own emissions i.e. the amount of CO2 that it generates. And then we look to offset that against the amount of CO2, the products and services that company provides and how much CO2 they allow a reduction of. At a minimum threshold, a company has to say and avoid more emissions than it creates itself. So that is a minimum threshold for investment. And unless a company can provide that data and satisfy us that it is a climate solutions provider that has a net positive climate balance, we cannot invest. And it brings up an interesting area of greenwashing. You know, there's been concerns today in the market that a lot of companies have stuck this climate badge on themselves. But when you actually look at the underlying holdings, they don't really prove that out. What we can, can prove on each and every holding when we provide a climate measurement report is that every single company is a climate solutions provider, both in intentionality and in impact. Now, from a day-to-day -day basis, our role is to find companies, bring up the watch list, keep on top of the companies that we're investing in, 
and also get involved in financing new companies, bringing them to the market when it comes to IPO. And as, as you can imagine, the huge areas, not just in the traditional areas that we would think of, i.e. renewable energy, te green technology companies, circular economy companies, all different sectors are now getting involved as they see a huge opportunity going forward, much the same as we do. That's really interesting, actually, to hear you outlining those three eyes and uh, you're making sure that those companies really are walking the walk. Um, now, you've spoken previously about how the UK has provided great opportunities for investors through the Green Deals and commitments to alignment with Paris goals. Can you explain a little about why this is creating a growth opportunity? Sure. You, you always want to invest, if you can, with a tailwind. And what do I mean by that? You want some help. You want to invest in areas that are growing. You also want to invest in areas where there are other tailwind opportunities. And regulation is that tailwind opportunity. So again, let me, let me help the understanding with an example. A decade ago, wind and solar were by some distance the most expensive forms of electricity generation available. They required huge amounts of subsidy and the economic rationale for investing wasn't necessarily there. We, we fast forward a decade and solar and wind today are the cheapest forms of electricity generation. So there we have the, our requirement for electricity continues to grow. Old methods of electricity generation, whether it be coal and gas, never mind the economics, the, the old plants will need to be replaced. Why replace them with fossil fuels when we can replace them with cheaper renewable energy today? And at the same time, you have a regulatory tailwind from the government pushing utilities along to say we need more cleaner energy and less of the dirtier energy. And to put it into context with another example outside of utilities, let's take electric cars, for example. Electric car costs are falling, but the UK government, and it was the first to do this, says that by 2030, it will ban, i.e. make illegal, the sale of combustion-powered vehicles in the UK that is nine years from today. And then five years after that, by 2035, they're going to ban the sale of hybrid vehicles on sale today. So in 14 years time, the only option you will have is to buy electric. Now, in order for electric cars to work, you require a huge amount of infrastructure that goes around, i.e. the electric charging points. If you're a company that wants to build EV charging stations, you now have a huge regulatory tailwind working behind you. As you know, the government is going to ban the sale of, of um, combustion and then hybrid vehicles. Everyone will have to move to electric. So you can see demand for your product is going to grow and you have the ability to invest capital today. So you have not only a growth, i.e. an investment tailwind, but you have that regulatory tailwind in other areas to push you along. Both are incredibly important. Yeah, I can see that. Now, what would you say are the limitations? Is it the availability of dry powder or is it investable climate related projects? I mean, we don't see an, you know, a, a lack of capital. Capital is available today, and more increasingly, capital is becoming more and more available. 
I think the difference that you have investing in sort of green, the green revolution, let's call it, is that you have quite long lead times to investments, i.e. a decision to build an offshore wind farm today, you have to go through, there are a lot of hoops you have to run through in terms of planning, then there's the construction phase, which takes some time. So investing capital today, you may not see a return for five or 10, 10 years. Same with um, electric charging points. I think um, investors just need to get comfortable that those returns will come and hence why that regulatory tailwind is quite important as well. And therefore they are able and willing to commit capital today and not necessarily earn an immediate return, but knowing full well that they're investing on the right side of consumer trends, but also on the right side of regulation as well. I think when we look to emerging markets, there is an element there of lack of capital going forward. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for this. A, um, the financial system there is simply not as well developed. The governments may not have as much capital, but also the investment infrastructure isn't necessarily there either when it comes to planning laws, whether it comes to corporate governance, all of these areas will need to be improved. And this is why you have the UN today asking developed countries to help commit 100 billion to developing countries for them to increase their amount of green investments. I mean, this is an area when it comes to hitting the 2050 targets that we're all in this together. It's no good just the UK leading ahead. We only live on one planet. So other, other countries, especially South America, Africa, in Asia, have a strong part to play. And that capital needs to get everywhere. Yeah, I can absolutely take your point about investors needing to understand it's a long game. Um, now, there's been a lot of talk about the growth of green bonds. Uh, Randeep, how important are green bonds in encouraging and financing sustainability projects? I would say very important. You know, bond investing still remains by quantum the largest method of investing today. Not all companies are listed, but non-listed companies can issue debt. So, you know, they, they have access to capital that we wouldn't necessarily have access to vis-a-vis -vis public markets. And to put a number around it, the World Bank estimates that up to 2.4 trillion green bonds will be issued by the year 2023 if we continue on our current trajectory. So green bonds are incredibly important going forward. And just for readers to have an understanding of green bonds, um, companies that issue these bonds ensure that they have corporate targets set around A, where the capital is going to be invested, i.e. green projects, but that the business itself has set forward its own green targets in order to meet the requirement for those bonds to be deemed green, i.e. again, there isn't an incidence of greenwashing. They are doing exactly what they say and investing and helping us reduce emissions and reduce global warming um, going forward. And I think we actually do see now um, that it's, you know, you get a higher return on green bonds going forward, which doesn't come as a surprise to us because you're investing in more sustainable projects going forward, not just sustainable from an environmental perspective, but sustainable from an investment perspective. 
That's really interesting. So what would you like to see or have seen that's encouraging in terms of industry collaboration for a net zero economy and the green transformation of the financial system? We've already seen movements in these areas. And again, let me help out with some examples. The Financial Stability Board, which is currently chaired by Michael Bloomberg, the um, former mayor of uh, New York City, uh, they have created the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Now, these are voluntary, and so far, over 1,500 global companies have um, adopted them. But what it basically means is that companies, alongside providing us with financial details in their statements that they're legally obliged to do. They also put together climate-related financial disclosures as well, risks from global warming, opportunities from global warming, whether they see and what parts of the business they see opportunities to invest in areas that will grow going forward and areas of their business which potentially are either risks or negative dash detrimental to global warming going forward. It effectively means that we can deploy capital more visibly in areas that we think are more sustainable, especially from a climate perspective. And we can companies can highlight the risks of their businesses where they may not be kind um, to the climate going forward. And it's just highlighting those risks and opportunities for everybody to see. And at the moment, it's voluntary, but more and more companies are signing up to this. Now, again, you asked that question about industry collaboration, and I'll give an example. There is an investor network out there today called Climate Action 100. It's it's an initiative to ensure that the 100 biggest polluters globally and they account for roughly 80% of all industrial emissions, that 1,615 investors have got together, and these 615 investors have 55 trillion in assets, and rather than individually speaking to these companies about climate, rather than individually trying to put forward proposals and trying to push companies to either set climate goals, invest more climate friendly, release more climate data, acting as one, they provide a much bigger force than they would if they were acting individually. And an example of this is ExxonMobil. Engine number two, which is an investment platform, which only on 0.2% of Exxon shares, wanted Exxon to work more towards a net zero target for 2050. The ExxonMobil board had said that they weren't going to do that. However, this one company collaborating with many other investors got these areas agreed at the Exxon AGM. And this is, you know, this is a company, Exxon, based in Texas that didn't really think that he had much involvement to play or could help. But here we've seen collaboration in the industry for positive effect. And it's groups like this. I've just mentioned a couple. Providing data is important and investors getting together in areas that they believe are important, such as climate, can have a huge impact. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, So one of the emerging issues that we've seen in the green and sustainable space is a lack of data, and in particular, a lack of good quality data. Randy, how do you think that we can improve both data collection and the quality of that data? The, The industry, in terms of data provision, still remains 
in an infancy. Um, investors haven't been asking for this for a huge amount of time. Some companies have done it, but as especially since Paris 2015, the UN's conference there, where we realized just how critical uh, uh, companies were going to be in reducing emissions going forward, the requirement for data has visibly increased. Now, companies are playing catch up. They need to provide this data. They are trying to provide this data. It's not always easy. And then we have um, institutions out there that help companies, CDP, MSCI, ISS, just to name a few, that ha have people there that both help, help companies formulate the data and also provide it to investors. I think the trajectory is quite good. But like I say, we're in our infancy. We need companies to carry on, commit more resources to this. And we do have some laggards in terms of companies that aren't doing this yet, but they all need to be involved. And it's getting better. And having external institutions like CDP, um, like ISS, like MSCI involved, I think helps that process along. They actively help companies and they also help investors. And the best things companies can do is provide sustainability reports and where they can provide scope one, two, and three emissions. Scope three emissions aren't always as easy because they're outside a company's control, but this is where those external networks can help in terms of how they're doing it. We have also helped companies um, in terms of putting this data together. Now, data quality. I mean, data quality, data verification is quite important. We, we do see companies today that have external auditing of their data to ensure that it's been independently put together. And even where estimates are used, that they've been used well and put together quite conservatively. Um, and, you know, we're seeing a whole ecosystem, especially around climate, being put together to help both listed, unlisted companies, government institutions and investors have the best possible data quality available in order to make decisions. It's a road. I think we're, we're still only at the beginning of it, but more and more companies are getting there. I think Europe in general has been excellent at this and for some time. It started off with Northern Europeans, the Scandinavian countries, it's come through Germany, um, the UK, and we're now seeing Southern Europe get more involved. I think US companies, especially um, since uh, President Biden got elected, but even before that, had been moving much more closer in providing climate data, providing sustainability reports, making that data available. Um, in terms of how I see, Asia's always been a little bit slower um, in these areas. But I think China signing up to the Paris Climate Goals, you are now seeing more and more Chinese companies um, providing data, where European companies have Chinese supply chains now, and it was difficult for them to provide scope three emissions. Today, when you speak to European companies, they're saying, well, a few years ago, nowhere. We didn't get anywhere with these companies in Asia. Now, more and more are starting uh, to provide that data. And also, I might add, set science-based targets. That's another thing companies can do, just set um, science-based targets um, in terms of their own emissions. And again, those are all independently and externally um, verified. And that gives a good indication of a company's uh, movement uh, moving towards uh, that net zero target for 2050. 
So would you say that's what investors and managers are looking for in their reporting, those sort of science-based targets? I think science-based targets um, are incredibly important to us. And I think it's the one framework globally that everyone has begun to get around. European companies, uh, US companies, and more and more now, um, emerging market companies. They're, they're very transparent in terms of what they look for. And also they provide the support for companies um, in order for them to get verified. It is a long process. Companies do have to provide a lot of data. Uh, sometimes they have to act with external parties or external consultants in order to get there. But having that one way to judge all companies, regardless of sectors and geographies, I think helps a great deal, rather than having a mishmash um, of um rules set by independent countries or independent regions or independent sectors. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? A sort of standardised set uh, of values to look at. Now, we recently held our Sustainable Finance Week uh, here in Guernsey, which explored the key sustainable finance developments in some of the core financial services industries of private equity, private wealth and family offices and the insurance industry. Um, many of the speakers who appeared there agreed that regulations and policy are important for institutional investors. Randy, I'm interested to learn your views on how different types of investors and managers are considering upcoming regulations. Do you think it's a business risk for companies for them to comply with upcoming mandatory reporting? We could turn that question around. Is it a business risk if they don't comply? <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> well, I mean, let's look at it this way. I think... Um, and what I generally found over the course of my career, especially not just internally, but when you speak externally, um, the investor that has the longer time frame considers areas like this much more important. They're not just thinking about the next quarterly results or even the next annual results. You're thinking about the next 5, 10, 15, 25 years in terms of investing. You want to invest in good companies today that compound and continue to grow going forward. And in order to do that, you need to manage all business risk, which includes regulation, which includes global warming. Um, I think insurance companies, I think uh, family offices that have very long time horizons have always been quite strong in these areas. Early adopters, for example, of say things like principles of responsible investing. I think what we're finding now is that investors that don't have such a large um, time frame are also realizing just how important this is. Upcoming regulations are put there for a reason. They're put there because we think that businesses are creating risks that affect all of us, all of us as individuals, as a society, but also their own businesses. So why don't we try and make that move that we all can grow sustainably and we can all benefit from this, and other big oil and gas companies are good examples. BP, Shell, and Total have had net, you know, these are oil and gas companies that now have net zero targets. Why? Because they realize that they can't continue 
emitting the way they do without everyone having bad consequences to this, including themselves, but also they want to be on the right side of regulation. Now, the same goes for investors. The EU have put out these SFDR, Article 8 and Article 9 propositions. It's to help with greenwashing, but also to ensure that capital is moved correctly in areas that they believe is sustainable. And similarly, with the EU taxonomy legislation, I think we all have a duty to be responsible investors. But as, as investors are realizing today, you can both do good and do well. And it's a train that is leaving. Um, and I think we all need to be appreciative of that. I agree. And it's something that you are hearing more and more um, that, you know, you can uh, do good and um, get a good return. Now, do you think there's a risk that the momentum and interest in the green finance sector might be wasted due to the growing alphabet soup and a lack of consistent requirements from stakeholders, such as lots of metrics to muddle through and several different taxonomies being created? Do you think that the growing number of regulations is a benefit or a hindrance? Now, I mean, markets always gyrate around in the short to medium term. There are hot sectors, there are cold sectors, there are areas that come back, there are areas that go out of favour. But I think what we have to think about today is where you think the investment industry goes over the next 20 to 30 years and make sure you are part of that surer footing in terms of how it moves. And that includes every sector, every country, every single company out there. So yes, of course, I mean, interest in the green finance sector will come and go just as investment areas come and go as well. But I think it's one of these areas that is gonna be a business risk and always a consideration of when we invest going forward. And I think having this 2050 Paris net um, zero goals in place means that it's never really going to go away. It will always, always be there, and it's become a. It will become a function of what every business and every regulator looks at um, over the coming decades. Hence, we think it's such a strong thematic from here going forward, and is only likely to grow. But as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, markets will move around. It will come into into focus, out of focus, over the next thirty years but it won't ever go away. Now, the point you make on this growing alphabet soup, yeah, you know, again, it's a much like data. We're still at our infancy. Um, you need some common principles to bind everything together. And chances are that we will move towards the areas that we believe are right. And all countries will begin to set um, the same similar types of rule all in all. Businesses are international. They don't want to have to work for different things in different jurisdictions. Chances are they'll just take the higher form of the legislation, much like they did with G GDPR, I might um, point I might like to make um, when it comes to use of data. So you speak to American companies today and they said, well, we saw um, GDPR, um, the EU had put that in as regulation. Now we just apply that rule across Asia and we apply that rule across the US, even if US is our bigger market because Europe is leading the way in regulations. We think this is important. And this is the this is the standard we think we need to aim for globally. I think we're likely to see the same thing when it comes to sustainability. And I wouldn't be surprised again if it's the EU setting those rules. Europe, and I include the UK in this, has always been the leader. 
in sustainability. So therefore, it's probably at the forefront of when those rules get to be made, especially large organizations that want to invest and sell their products globally will probably look to the EU um, in this area as well. So I think the EU's upcoming, it's already parts of it have already started to be announced, but the taxonomy legislation will be very important, not for us as Europeans, but also the rest of the world. I think that's a really good point you make uh, about the adoption of uh, the principles of GDPR, uh, even in jurisdictions where it, it, it's not um, currently uh, a regulation. And I, I think that's very pertinent, actually. Now, with so many funds and companies claiming ESG credentials, how can you be mindful of greenwashing? This is something we just touched on earlier. What do you think investors should be looking out for? Yeah, I mean, we've begun to see examples now of the regulator coming in and speaking to institutions and saying, I'm sorry, you know, your products don't live up to the claims that you're making. Um, I think in terms of Europe, SFDR, the Sustainable Framework for Disclosure Requirements, the Article 8 and 9 will become very important. There's um, there's procedures that you have to put around those. So when funds claim those articles, you know that they have to be doing what they say, otherwise they will lose them um, pretty quickly. Um, like ourselves, so we have principles in place when we invest in the climate funds, they have to be net net climate positive in terms of emissions. We produce an annual climate measurement report and it's not done aggregate at the fund level, line by line, every single holding, we show you how much carbon this company is saving in their last available report. And again, we can't invest in companies that don't provide the, the climate measurement data, i.e. their own carbon emissions. I think investors will start to get quite warm to this, pardon the pun. I think they will realize that if your, your product isn't providing the data, means that the invest the investor isn't, company isn't inviting, um, providing the data either. So you're in sort of a gray area. So this will provide a springboard for institutions to do the right thing and companies to realize that if we want to attract this area of investment, we need to get much better with our own disclosures. Again, I think things are improving. And I hope, I really do hope that the incidents that we've seen lately of institutions being called out will be a, a strong wake up and reminder um, to everyone in this industry that while what we're doing is important, it's also important that we do it properly. Yeah, and, and hopefully it will lead to some kind of acceleration as well. Now, this podcast is going to be released just before COP. Uh, countries have been looking to 2050 for net zero targets. Do you think there's enough focus on the short term goals? And do you think that COP's going to be able to help with that focus? Do I think there's been enough focus on short term goals? No. Um, when Paris got put in place, if you're, a, if you're a sitting prime minister or a sitting president and you're signing commitment targets for 2050, you will also have in the back of your mind that you're not going to be leader of that country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in 2050. So it's pretty easy to get the applause by your fellow um, leaders and delegations at the UN um, when you sign that statement. Um, but you're not necessarily going to be the one responsible for delivering it or the one empowering 2050 when you have to judge, has this been a success or not? So nearer term targets are incredibly, incredibly important. One of the main aims 
of COP26, which is the Conference of Parties, which takes place in under a month's time now in Glasgow, is for countries to set those nearer term targets. So net zero for 2050 is fantastic, but give us those targets um, for 2025, 2028, 2030. The UK has done that. The EU is in the process of doing that. President Biden has now put that forward. But you've got to remember 197 territories and countries are part of the Paris Align framework. All of them now need to play that part. And with hope, more and more will now set out nearer term targets. And what, and again, going back to our very first question, what do nearer term targets mean? More regulation, more investment, and a more likelihood and an easier path to get to that target in 2050. So they are incredibly, incredibly important. And hopefully, you know, we don't have to wait till the 31st of October. More and more countries, even before COP now, will start putting that out there. The big hope is that China does, to be quite frank. They're the world's largest polluter, the world's second largest economy, by far still seeing large amounts of growth when it comes to emissions. For them to come out and put a target, I think will be a watershed moment. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it would be so great just to have those sort of bite-sized chunk targets to aim for rather than this great big long road of, of 2050, which does seem an awfully long time away. So previous COPs have primarily focused on country targets. Uh, how much of this COP26 will be looking at financial institutions? And why is that so important for net zero? Let's go back to our beginning statement. 92 to $173 trillion is required. Uh, that's an estimation in order to get to net zero. That requires a lot of capital being channeled into the correct hands uh, for us to produce the products and services in order to reduce our emissions. We can only get there if financial institutions pay a part. You know, I always call it the, th the three-legged stool, and all those three legs need to be there and strong. You need governments for regulation. You need industry to be on side and start investing capital correctly. You then also need uh, the consumer to realize that their own behavior, their own actions, how they live, how they work, how they travel, how they spend are all important. But, but what binds those three areas together is capital. Putting together, whether it be taxation, policy, incentivization, making sure that investors that want to invest in green areas do invest. The Bank of England now has green targets as well as inflation targets. It's making sure that everyone plays a part because the only way we get to net zero by 2050 is by everybody playing a part. It's a race, it's a challenge, and it's by no means an easy challenge. And we're going to need everything working in order to get there. I think you're absolutely right. And it's really important to highlight that, uh, you know, governments and industry can do so much, but consumers, uh, you know, are really pushing that uh, behavioural change as well. So you mentioned that uh, the Chinese uh, could be a watershed moment at COP26. Is there anything else do you think that we should be looking out for? I think two areas um, I'd like to highlight. One is the hard to abate emissions. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, the, the world has moved forward and has continues to move towards electrification 
which is fantastic. The electrification is going to play a very, very big part in reducing emissions, but there are hard to abate areas. Aviation is one of them, the manufacture of steel, cement, long haul road transportation, shipping, for example, all of these areas today do not have electric electrification solutions in order for them to cut emissions. Therefore, we require a completely different thought process and solution in order for these areas to cut. And to put into context what we're talking about, it's about a third of global emissions that come from those sectors that I've just mentioned. So unless we can tackle these hard to abate emissions, we are not going to reach net zero for 2050. Now, there seems to be a, a growing and common consensus around clean hydrogen. It's a, it's a tangible form of fuel which can be transported, it can be shipped, um, but it's produced with zero carbon emissions. It's produced by renewable energy, for example, wind and solar and hydro. It can then be transported around. It's then fungible like fuel, um, but it doesn't create any emissions. And I think countries putting forward policies towards green hydrogen are going to be incredibly important. The UK and the EU have talked about it. The US Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, has openly said she is now working on the US's um, clean hydrogen policy going forward. I think it's incredibly important for COP now for us to start tackling these areas, these hard to abate areas, and not just having national plans, but having global plans on how we're going to produce it, how we're going to transport it, and the regulations around it. Again, that will help by all of that will help putting more and more focus and investment in these areas. The other area that I think is going to be incredibly important is carbon markets. Uh, you know, you heard them spoke about a sort of carbon permitting, but it's effectively putting a price on carbon today. So companies and individuals and activities that emission, emit emissions actually pay a price what they emit. Now, the EU are currently talking about it now. The EU has a carbon permitting system in place. There are too many permits out there, so it doesn't really work, but they're working on reducing those permits. They're also working on applying a 110 euro a ton carbon price. Um, Remarkably, some um, provinces in China are trialing carbon permitting. The state of California in the US is trialing carbon permitting, carbon permitting. But I think if more and more countries look to actually put a price on carbon and therefore have to buy a permit or pay a penalty for emitting, that will, that will enhance the abatement process and emissions reduction so much sooner. And again, COP is exactly the forum for countries to be speaking that way. And the issue around carbon, um, carbon permitting is very simple. No country or no industry wants to put itself at a single disadvantage by applying 110 euro price for carbon when, for example, areas in the US or areas in China, India, Japan aren't doing exactly the same thing. They will effectively just price their business out of production. So again, this is an area that needs to be looked at on a global lens, and hence COP is just the right, right format formula to do that. I think that's uh, absolutely right. And um, it, it's really interesting to hear what you've got to say about COP. And I, I very much hope that we do get that sort of global watershed 
moment this time. Thank you so much, Randeep, for your time and insights today. Uh, And I'd also like to thank you for listening to the podcast. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. You can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. It's always great to hear your feedback. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. We'll also have links to Randy and MNG's social media in our show notes. So check those out to hear more from them. And you can also watch our Sustainable Finance Week on Demand now on our website, presented in association with the United Nations Financial Centres for Sustainability. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.